the de-dollarization of the commodity trade that we're witnessing uh, in real time, the, the biggest macro consequence of that is an emerging market boom of epic proportion. The biggest constraint for most emerging markets was accessing dollars. And it was, it was a constraint today, but it's also a constraint over the future. So you were always reluctant to embark on big infrastructure spending, like let's say India build a railway. Well, you know, if tomorrow you can't buy the iron ore because you've run out of dollars. Uh, now I think I'm never going to run out of rupees. Uh, so I'm in good shape. Imagine spending an hour with the world's greatest traders. Imagine learning from their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Imagine no more. Welcome to Top Traders Unplugged, the place where you can learn from the best hedge fund managers in the world so you can take your manager due diligence or investment career to the next level. Before we begin today's conversation, remember to keep two things in mind. All the discussion we'll have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their product before you make investment decisions. Here's your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup-Larsen. Welcome or welcome back to another conversation in our series of episodes that focuses on markets and investing from a global macro perspective. This is a series that I not only find incredibly interesting, as well as intellectually challenging, but also very important given where we are in the global economy and the geopolitical cycle. We want to dig deep into the minds of some of the most prominent experts to help us better understand what this new global macro-driven world may look like. We want to explore their perspectives on a host of game-changing issues and hopefully dig out nuances in their work through meaningful conversations. Please enjoy today's episode, hosted by Alan Dunn. Thanks very much for the introduction, Niels. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Louis Gav. Louis is founding partner and chief executive officer of Gavical. Louis has been in the markets for several years as an economist and strategist. He's the author of several books, Louis, it's great to have you with us today. Uh, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Well, I know you're based in uh, in um, Vancouver, so you're up early over there today. I'm sure it's, uh, well, I guess it's nice and sunny. Is it a good day there? It's a beautiful day. This is the nice time of year over here. Uh, good so it's, it's, it's great to be here. Well, thanks for taking the time. Um, before we get started into the meat of the conversation, we normally like to get a sense of our guests' journey in markets, how you got involved as a, an economist, strategist, researcher, um, and what took you to your current uh, uh, role um, where you've uh, founded Gavical. It's a, not a very complicated story. Um, again, thanks a lot for having me. I'm delighted to be here. So my dad worked in the markets. My dad then he, uh, started actually a research firm on asset allocation in the mid 70s when there were few of those around and that morphed into a money management firm in the early 80s he you know he grew a, a pretty decent sized business that money management firm uh, managed about 10 billion um, as, as a macro fund and then uh, the firm was sold to alliance capital um, which is now called alliance bernstein and and he retired uh, in the meantime I, you know i'd gone to university i'd actually gone to the army for a few years and became an officer in the french army then Coming out of the army, I realized I didn't know how to do anything, so I went to the markets. And uh, I was hired by a French investment bank uh, called Paribas. 
Uh, one thing I didn't know, it was I knew how to speak English. I knew how to speak Chinese. So I started off in Paris, but they took over uh, a Pan-Asian business. So they sent me to, uh, over there uh, with my then boss to, to do the integration. And it was a fascinating time. I was because I got there just before the Asian crisis. Uh, and so early in my career, I sort of had a front row seat uh, on, you know, I think one of the biggest implosion, or at least it definitely felt like it at the time. You had, you know, I think the Indonesian stock market lost 97% in US dollar terms in the space of three or four months. So it was a, you know, quite a, a powerful learning experience. And, yeah, you know, after that, I decided macro was my thing. It's hard It's hard not to sit in front of a market, go ni- down 97% and realize what the hell just happened here. And so I decided macro was my thing. And my father had retired, but uh, I talked him out of retirement and we started to go back to his first love, which was a macro research firm. So we, we did that. And eventually, it that also evolved into a money management firm. So today we have both things. We have a macro research firm money management uh, and from the start, we were joined by one of my father's friends called Anatol Kaletsky, who might be known to some of your listeners because he used to have a, I uh, used to be a columnist in the FT and a columnist in the Times. So his, he was, I think, one of the more famous financial journalists. Absolutely. Now, I remember my time in the, starting off in the mid to late 90s when Kaletsky had a comment in the, in the Times, it was typically yeah, market moving, at least back in those days. So, so thanks very much for that. Well, I mean... Maybe to set the stage for for some of the other topics we'll get into, you know, I think maybe the big question um, in markets at the moment, uh, there was an article in the FT, you know, in the last few days, you know, is the US economy about to crack? You know, is, is, is the tightening of monetary policy finally taking hold? And I guess it's been a bit of a strange cycle. Rates have gone from zero to over 5% and, and nothing apart from a brief uh, shake in in the banking system nothing has really cracked so what's your perspective on that has something changed is the transmission po- uh, mechanism of monetary policy adjusted or is it just the typical kind of long and variable lags that are maybe taking a little bit of time to play out it's a look it's a very important question it's one we're debating obviously like in every firm we're debating this heavily um we have two u.s economists in our firm called will denier and kx dan who've been very adamant the U.S. is about to have a recession. Uh, Anatole and I have argued uh, precisely the opposite point uh, to, to clients. And I think a, a lot of that debate comes down to uh, a flow versus stock debate. I think if you, if you're, if you look at rate of change things, here, here's a perfect example. If you look at uh, U.S. M2, uh, so, you know, broad money supply, and, you know, if you, if you think money makes the world go round, uh, starting with money is just as good a place to start, right? So if you look at M2 growth, I think it's down like 4.8% year on year or something like that. Let's call it five to, to, to make things simpler. It's never been negative year on year before. And here we are minus 5%. So you look at this and you think, of course, the US economy is going to implode. But then if you look in absolute levels um, and you look at the long-term trend growth trend of M2 and you look at where we stand, we are still sort of two and a half standard deviation above where we should be in terms of historical because we pushed so much money in 2020, 21, and even the first half of 22, that it's like the proverbial pig inside the python, right? Uh, we pushed so much fiscal stimulus and so much monetary stimulus that, that we're still digesting this. Um, now, to your point on, we haven't yet seen any impact on the US economy. I think we have to give credit where credit is due and that 
something fascinating that's occurred in the U.S. economy is that when you had interest rates that were stupidly low, you know, when you had interest rates at zero while inflation was was already running at four or five percent, um, American consumers did the right thing. They were smart. They said, "Oh, I can lock in my mortgage for th- twenty years at three percent. I'll do that. Thank you very much." And so did U.S. corporates. U.S. corporates massively extend the duration of their debt. Um, the, there's two entities that did not do it, that in essence believed the Fed when the Fed said, I'm going to keep rates for a very long time at 0%. Those were A, the banks, and as you've highlighted, that they've run into trouble, uh, and B, the government itself. Uh, the government actually massively shortened the duration of its debt. So if you start off with the premise that recessions are there to clean out the excesses of the past cycle, to basically wipe out the balance sheets of people who've leaned too far above their skis. Um, U.S. consumer balance sheets are not in bad shape. U.S. corporate balance sheets are not in bad shape. The, the balance sheet that's in really bad shape is the government balance sheet. So logically, we should be in the phase of the cycle where the government should be tightening its belt right now. Uh, and, that sh- and that should be slowing growth. But here's the fascinating thing, is instead of doing that, it's going the other way. You know, I'll, I'll be very honest. If you told me five years ago, uh, pre-COVID, that we could have a U.S. economy where, on the one hand, you'd have full employment, and on the other, you'd have a budget deficit of six percent of GDP. I would have said you were an imbecile. I would have said this this just doesn't happen. Uh, and yet here we are today, right? And not only that, um, you know, with a government that's basically probably running a budget deficit of one and a half two trillion dollars for the year, they've just come out and said we're going to add another four trillion to the debt over the next two years. I mean, that's the budget deal they just cut, right? They can move the debt from 31 to 35 over the next two years, and they're going to do the Inflation Reduction Act, they're going to do the infrastructure spending, and they're going to do all this at a time, massively increase government debt, massively increase infrastructure spending at a time when employment is full. So I'm not a big believer in the U.S. recession story. Um, I, I, maybe I'm stupid, but I just don't see how when you have budget deficits of 6 7 8% of GDP, you can have a recession. It takes, it really takes a contraction on the consumer and the and the, the corporates that's just massive in scope to compensate for this massive expansion in government debt. Interesting. So, I mean, it sounds like two things. One, one the budget deficit, and then obviously, kind of, you're talking about the um, the, the stock versus flow. So, so the excess stock of cash and savings, I guess, that are still in the system. And, and I think that FT article that I mentioned referenced some research from, I think, the San Francisco Fed, and they thought there was maybe 500 billion of excess savings still left, and that might keep keep consumers going for through to the end of the year. I, I mean, do you think we'll have a scenario? I mean, do you think the, the, you're saying no recession yet? Do you think it means no recession this year or next year? Or do you think we get to a point where the excess savings roll off and then you have a sudden uh, uh, change in the environment or, or, or not? Well, I think first we have to clearly define what we mean by recession. Um, because if we mean two negative quarters in a, in a row, we actually had that in 22. We had two negative quarters in a row in, in 2022, but we had no increase, no meaningful increase in unemployment whatsoever. Um, so if by recession you mean, oh, we're going to get two negative quarters in a row, I would say, yeah, so what? We had that in 22. It had zero impact on the markets. So I think by recession, we mean a period where unemployment goes up meaningfully to the point where people cut back on their consumption and where you get a sort of 
negative spiral, right? Where you get the, because there's unemployment, there's less consumption, because there's less consumption, there's more unemployment and, and you, you, you create this negative, uh, this negative spiral. Now, are we going to see that right now? We're definitely not seeing it again. You know, unemployment is strong. Wages are still, are still rising and especially wages are rising at the high end. And if by all accounts, we do get this big inflation reduction act, this big increase in infrastructure spending right in time for the presidential election. Uh, and by the way, looking at the presidential election, you have two governors of, out of the two of the three biggest states, Florida and California. One has already declared, the other is inching to run. And both of them are you know, putting pedal to the metal in terms of their, their budget. So you got two out of the three biggest states in the US that are gonna be also ramping up the, the spending. So I look at all this and I think, okay, you know, where is the increase in unemployment gonna come from to, to really have a bite? Um, when, when the, and again, the, the labor market, ask anybody who's trying to hire people, labor market's super tight, especially at the low end. Wages are going up, especially at the low end. And so consumption stays strong. Yeah. So, I mean, that takes us to a piece you wrote recently, the inflation deflation debate, which, um, I initially I was a bit surprised to see you talking about this because there's such a narrative has built up that inflation is coming down and coming down steadily. Um, but I guess from your perspective, particularly um, if you see the economy as staying, staying strong, uh, fueled by, by fiscal expansion, do you, you know, wh- where do you see um, inflation settling in, in the next uh, couple of years? Look, I've, I've been a big inflationista uh, and, 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 and I remain one, um, partly because I still see no fiscal consolidation. Um, you know, I think if, if you... If you're serious about getting inflation under control, you're not running budget deficits of six, seven, eight percent of GDP uh, while while you have full employment. I mean, you, you're just not. Now, the reality is, if you look at the 1970s, which is the last big example of big inflationary periods, but actually, or in emerging markets who've who've experienced inflation over the past 30 years, what you find is that inflation is a very um, volatile variable. You know, you, you go up to 10 percent, and you go back down to three, and then you go back to six, et cetera. Now, if you look at, if you look at the, you know, everybody right now is cheering on the fact that oh, inflation is back to four percent or four and a half on the core. This is uh, this is good news. We're we're heading in the right direction. Disinflation is back, etc. I mean, first four and a half is still high. Let's 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 put it out there. Four and a half. You know, when I left the army, I was seventy four kilos. I'm ninety five kilos uh, now. I'm still getting fatter every year. I'm just doing it at a slower pace, but it's still. You know, I'm still not getting back to my optimal 75 kilos. So we're still, we still have inflation in the system. Let's not kid ourselves. But when you look at where the disinflation came from, it basically all came from energy. And that in the third quarter starts to roll off because the year-on-year comparisons get, get much tougher. Now, this isn't to say there aren't deflationary forces out there. Um, I think uh, right now, you know, one of the big deflationary forces is that Asian currencies remain surprisingly weak to me. I've, I've been a big bull on Asian currencies, but uh, I've been wrong-footed by the weakness of the renminbi this year. I've been wrong-footed by the weakness of the yen. And so, you know, all, you know, if you've got the yen, the won, the renminbi going down, that's, that's where most of the stuff in the world is produced nowadays between those three countries. So that, that's, that's, that's been deflationary. Obviously, energy uh, has been another big deflationary force, one that I, I don't expect to, uh, to continue. So, you know, I think if, if you're looking for, you know, what's deflationary going forward, that's really it. I think your, your hope has to be that, oh, China continues to weaken 
and therefore the, the renminbi continues to go down and Japan continues to do yield curve controls, so the yen continues to go down. Uh, but again, those two currencies are now seriously undervalued. So, so betting that something seriously undervalued goes even lower is, uh, over the long term, I mean, it's not impossible, but it's just a tougher bet. Now, on, on the inflation side, I'm fearful that there's, there's a number of things that could happen in the, in the near future. The first is, I think we're heading back to a summer of strikes uh, in the U.S., and it all starts, to be honest, with the weather. So we have, you know, it, by all accounts, it, it starts. It looks like we're going to have a pretty strong El Nino this year. Um, now, with with a strong El Nino, it means that the temperature goes up in a lot of places, not least of not least of which in Central America. And we already have a, a Panama Canal that's running dry. Um, so big boats can't go through the Panama Canal right now because you know the Panama Canal is above sea level; it gets fed by a lake. So really, big boats can't go through anymore already. There's not enough draft for them. So this gives power all of a sudden to the dockers on the West Coast. Um, and now, lo and behold, what do you know? These guys are going on strike. Um, Teamsters, so basically the truck drivers, are also going on strike in the U.S. UPS drivers going on strike. So you've got all these strikes that are going to occur at a time when inventories are actually pretty low. Remember, because why? Six months ago, everybody was telling you there was going to be a recession. So... Every procurement manager everywhere was like, yeah, I'm not going to stock up on inventories. Um, I, it's the typical boom-bust cycle, right? It was, we had too low inventories. We had supply chain dislocations. So everybody triple ordered. Then you had to work through the excess inventories. As you work through the in- excess inventories, like, I'm not doing that mistake again. Instead, they're doing the mistake they did the previous time where they under-ordered. And now we're back to strikes with the low inventories. So... I think we could easily head back to a, a summer of, of supply chain dislocations. Uh, so that's number one. Number two, with El Nino, you typically get bad harvests. You get a very dry Midwest uh, and you get a very dry Asia. Uh, now, if it's a one-year El Nino, that's not that big a deal. So for this year, it might, it might not be that, that much of a problem. Next year, it could become problematic. Uh, and then finally, I think we still, have, we still haven't resolved Europe's energy issues. We got lucky this winter. Uh, we, I say we, because I'm French. Um, we got we got lucky this winter because, as a European, because the winter was fairly mild. I mean, hopefully we get lucky again this year, but that that's a coin toss. I, I guess that, like in 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 the context of this overall kind of inflation deflation debate, you know, the the other factors that get mentioned a lot are, you know, deglobalization, um, certainly one of the big ones. And and you know, if we were to go back, maybe the last. Last summer, you know, or last October, even Jackson Hole, that was the big theme. Some people maybe less accepting of that idea, but but I mean, in terms of how real do you think that is, and how much of a driver of markets that will be over the coming years? So I think deglobalization is is a, is a polite word to hide what we really mean, which is designification. What it's because if you live in Shanghai, Beijing, Hong Kong. It definitely feels like your world is deglobalizing. You know, all of a sudden, there's a lot fewer white people walking around the streets. All of a sudden, you know, VC firms are shutting down their offices or whatever else. Um, and it feels like China is being shunned. Um, and if you're Chinese and you're a graduate student hoping to do a PhD in the U.S., things have gotten much harder, etc. So, but if you're India, if you live in Dubai, if you live in Indonesia, if you live in Mexico, it doesn't feel like your world is deglobalizing at all. Uh, your world is globalizing at an accelerated pace. You know, people in Mexico are complaining at the number of expats who've moved in. You know, India all of a sudden is getting uh, Apple uh, fa- factories. So 
it's uh, deglobalization. I guess it all depends where, where, where you stand from. Now, having said that, the reason everybody was in China in the first place was because of costs, right? And they're moving out of China, not out of choice, but out of political imperative. And that comes with a cost. You know, I don't think Apple is saying, oh, you know what? I'm going to move to India because it's cheaper. No, they're going to move to India because they get U.S. political pressure uh, to de-signify their chain of production. So de-signification is an inflationary force. Um, just as China, you know, for the past 25 years for me, was the world's greatest deflationary force out there. And now, whether we decided we wanted to turn our back away from China or not, I, I think China was going to be less of a deflationary force for the world regardless. Because, you know, I grew up in a world, well, we both grew up, I think we're roughly the same age, but we both grew up in a world in which China was adding workers, you know, 10, 15 million motivated, well-trained, productive workers into the workforce every year. The Chinese workforce is no longer growing. So the years of China, you know, being this big deflationary uh, force on global manufacturing wages is well and truly over. And obviously you've spent a lot of time in Asia and um, Gavakal based in Hong Kong. You can give a, a pretty interesting insight. You know, start of the year, everybody was very bullish on the the reopening trade i was okay <laughs> well, there you go i didn't know that but, but but that was probably the consensus it seems to have fizzled out very quickly um at the same time if we would you know go back obviously we had the structural challenges with 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 the property side and um you know from a demographic perspective is it is it, is it that those longer term structural factors that are kind of um, impacting that uh, cyclical upswing, or was there something about, you know, China that that hasn't experienced the same kind of reopening phenomenon that we we, we saw elsewhere in the world? Yeah, so I've had to do a lot of soul searching on this because I, I've been very wrong on this. I, I thought China's reopening would uh, would lead to sparkles and champagne everywhere, etc., like like we saw in the Western world. Um, now, if you want the the kind explanation or the hopeful explanation. It would be that policy in China during the lockdowns was very different than in the Western world. In the Western world, as we were discussing before, we pushed in more cash in our economies than we ever had. You know, again, the pig and the python uh, thing. You know, fiscal policy, monetary policy, we just went all in during COVID. And so when we reopened, people had cash in their pocket to burn, right? Uh, and everybody went out, went out large. China actually did not do this. There was no growth in monetary aggregates. There was, you know, no easing of fiscal policy dur during the lockdown period. Uh, instead, China really relied on its export industry to sort of make it through. So that, you know, when it reopened, people didn't have money in their pocket that was burning a hole. Um, instead, what you've seen is China started to uh, reignite the economy or inject liquidity and uh, push money in really starting around January. Uh, if you look at bank loan growth, for example, it really picks up in January, February. So if you think, oh, well, there's the usual leads and lags of monetary policy. And so it's, gonna, it's going to pick up by the end of this year. Um, that would be the, the sort of kind uh, understanding or the hopeful understanding. But um, it clearly seems that uh, the, the Chinese government is starting to realize actually this isn't enough. This isn't enough because you know, historically, what would happen in China is that the government would tell the banks, okay, you can go out and lend. 
And the property developers would take that money and immediately buy land. And they would buy land from local authorities. And then the local, because land was seen as a scarce resource. Um, and the local authorities would take this money and use this money to embark on infrastructure spending. So you had a sort of double impetus, right? You had the property developers going out, buying land and therefore building buildings. And you had local authorities doing infrastructure spending. Um, and so you had this a twin growth and it would go pretty quickly. I've not seen this at all this time. And I think you haven't seen this for, for a number of reasons. Uh, one of them is, of course, pre-COVID, the, the property developers spent two years getting beat up and half of them went bust. So the, the half that have survived were by far the most conservative half. Like if you were an aggressive Chinese property developer, you didn't survive the past five years. And the guys that have survived have been pretty traumatized. And so what are they doing? You're seeing the increase in bank loans. They are tapping the bank credit but you're not seeing an increase in land sales at all. And instead, what they're doing is they're taking that money and they're buying back their bonds. They're buying back their bonds because, you know, if your bond is trading at 60 cents on the on the renminbi, you know, buying back your bond is the, the smartest investment you can make. It's got the highest return on invested capital. You clean up your balance sheet, you book 40 cents in profits, flow straight to your bottom line. You should be doing this all day long. And, and that's what they are doing. But the traction on the rest of the economy is, is of course very limited because what happens is a lot of these bonds are actually owned by the banks themselves or the insurance companies or the pension funds. So the real estate company borrows money from the bank and basically buys back the bond from the bank. So the money comes right back in, into the bank and the impact on the economy is, is basically zero. Um, now, it still leaves you in a situation where today the Chinese money supply growth, if you look at M2 growth in China, is now roughly twice the growth rate of nominal GDP. Now, when I started in this business, my very first client told me, Louis, remember, it's an easy game. You have to know if there's more money than fools, in which case you buy risk assets, or more fools than money, in which case you, you sell risk assets. So, you know, the old idea that money makes the world go round. So today, here's, here's perhaps how you can conceive China is... Uh, you, it's, you know, it's a closed capital economy, right? And the government is shoveling money in and the banks are increasing their lending. Money growth is accelerating. Um, but on the other side of this money growth, the economy isn't taking this money. Uh, so now the money is sitting at the bank, but it has a vocation to go elsewhere. At some point, it has to go elsewhere. So will it go into financial markets and drive asset price inflation or will it go into the economy and drive stronger growth? That's the that's the the billion dollar question. If you look at the two thousand nine example, uh, you know we did this in two thousand nine, right? We we injected we being the Western world, we we injected a ton of money in our system on the hope that this money would create more economic activity, and really all it did was drive asset prices higher. So we're in the phase in China. I think that's not that dissimilar to two thousand eight, two thousand nine in the Western world. Remember in two thousand eight. Do you remember when I posed the bus, everybody was saying, oh, there's so many empty homes in Florida and so many empty homes in Arizona and so many empty homes in Nevada. They'll never be used. You know, we got to ride all these, we got to bulldoze all these homes, et cetera. And, and five years later, they were all occupied. But for me, you know, we're all the fruits of our own experiences, but I'm having deja vu all over again. You know, the, right now I've got everybody telling me, oh, there's so much oversupply uh, of real estate in China. It's never going to get occupied. It should all get bulldozed uh, and start again. Uh, meanwhile, you got a government that's pushing liquidity in, just like we did. So it'll be interesting to see where that where where that money ends up. 
Yeah. Well, I guess the other possible parallel is then with, with Japan back in whenever, 1990 or 2000, you know, and, and, and they tried pushing a lot of money in and... Uh, I'm not sure they did, actually. Sorry to, sorry to interrupt you there. It, they, they did well, push they were a lot first of- with zero interest rates and quantitative easing, so... Yeah, but they, they, I mean, they took, it took them a while to get there. Um, it, it took them a while to get there. Before that, they did, hiked taxes. Uh, so there, there was a big tax hike of 1995. Um, I think the, the other key difference, there's a few key differences with Japan. Um, the first key difference is, uh, you know, the real estate bubble in Japan was on an epic scale. You know, you had a shop in Ginza uh, at the top of the bubble in 1989 that sold for a million US dollars a square meter. And this was back when a million US dollars was a whole lot of money. You know, I'm sure you remember the stats that, you know, the, the land under the Imperial Palace was worth more than the whole of California, etc. I mean, it got... It got to to levels of stupidity that were that were really quite quite something. So, so so that's number one. And I'm not saying that you know you didn't have bubbles in Chinese real estate, but we didn't have them to that scale. Just like you had bubbles in U.S. real estate in 2008, but they were bubbles that you could digest over a few years of income growth, etc. So so that's number one. Number two, I think uh, a key a key difference is that basically all the Japanese banks went, went bust. And they never really recapitalized the banks. So the banks were actually unable to, to extend loans in Japan. So you look through the 1990s, basically bank loans in Japan kept falling, which is not the situation you have in China. Now, in China, you have banks that are, in essence, arms of the government. And where you actually don't have a regulator coming in and saying, you're bust here, you bust there, you have to liquidate those assets, etc. Um, China actually has the option to extend and pretend, which is what they do Every, every cycle. Um, and it's all the more so since they have capital controls. So I know that like, the parallel with Japan is often drawn. And I'm not saying there's not problems in China, but I think the parallel with Japan is, is too lazy, if I, if I dare say so. It's basically saying, oh, Japan had a real estate bust, and then it had bad demographics. Oh, China is having a real estate bust, and it has bad demographics. Ergo, we should expect the same outcome. Um, there's also another massive difference, I would say, between China and Japan. Sorry to rant to, to get on my soapbox about this. But if you go back to 1989, you had a massive bubble in, in Japanese real estate. You had a massive bubble in Japanese equities. You know, 45% of the world MSCI in 1989 was Japanese equities. And, and foreigners were loaded with Japanese equities because it was 45% of people's benchmarks. Japanese banks alone that were bust, we, then, we didn't know it then, but we now know, were 25% of the world MSCI. So you had a whole decade with foreigners, and actually probably three decades, where foreigners kept on selling Japan. Nobody's exposed to China today. And the Chinese stock market is, is not a massive bubble. We could argue, you can argue you don't want to be invested in there for tons of reasons, but you know, Alibaba at seven times cash flow is not a massive bubble. To the extent that, you know, Bank of Tokyo Mitsubishi at six times book was a massive bubble, especially when we know, when we know what the book was. So I highlight this because, I, you know, the, there's a lot of problems in China, but I think it's too lazy a comparison to say, oh, this is what happened in Japan, therefore this is what's going to happen in China. The big challenge or the big maybe question mark, obviously on, on China you have geopolitical risk, but but the other big question that, that's been hanging over it really going back for couple of decades has always been this idea of the, you know, um, transition of, of the, the growth driver from 
either firstly from net exports, obviously, as you mentioned, uh, investment demand was a real strong driver over the last decade or, or so. And, and would we ever see this transitioning to a more consumer led economy? And different views on these. Obviously, it hasn't really happened to date. And some people's expectation was it would once kind of GDP per capita exceeded certain thresholds, etc. And then at the same time, there is an, a, a view that, well, no, structurally, because of the lack of, you know, a social welfare and, um, and pensions um, net there, that, that, that the savings rate will always be higher in, in China. So curious to get your perspective on that debate. And, and do you see a, a transitioning at some point? So I think we're in the middle of this transition, to be honest. Um, but I, I want to make first uh, a, a small observation, and then I'm going to answer your question. I'm, I'm not trying to avoid it. But I think, you know, all of us who've worked in markets for the past 25, 30 years have been formatted to think of the world in terms of the U.S. and China, because that's where all the growth came from for the past 25 or 30 years, right? So we, we've basically spent all our time thinking, ooh, and, you know, we started off we're talking, oh, is there going to be a U.S. recession or not? And then we moved on to, okay, what's what's happening in China? Because these are always the two main concerns of every major investor out there. Because if you got those two calls right in the past 25 years, you ended up in a broadly okay place. But is the next 10, 15 years going to be the same? Um, and I've written a number of pieces on this. But you know, what if the growth in the next 10 years doesn't come from either China or the marginal growth doesn't come from China or the U.S., but it comes from the fact that if you're India, you can now buy your commodities in your own currency, add credit, do long-term contracts with Russia in rupees, which basically removes the greatest uncertainty to any kind of infrastructure spending you need to make. And it's the case for India, it's the case for Indonesia, it's the case for Thailand, it's the case for Brazil. So what's interesting to me is today, you know, we have, we have a, one message from the equity markets, which is, oh, the next bull market is artificial intelligence. And we have a message from the bond markets that the next big bull market is going to be in emerging markets. I mean, if you look at the past 18 months, Brazilian government bonds have outperformed U.S. treasuries by 50%. That, that's never happened. Indian government bonds have outperformed U.S. treasuries by like 25%. That's never happened. Same for Indonesia. Same, same for so many of these markets. Now, to me, a real proper bull market, like, uh, you know, like something that goes on for 10 years where you, you make five times your money is, is what we call in our research a triple merit scenario, where you make money on the currency, you make money on the bonds, you make money on, on the equities, where basically you get falling real rates, rising, rising, equity, uh, rising um, exchange rate, rising asset prices. And today where you're seeing this is places like Brazil, like India, like Indonesia, like Mexico. And you know if you take just an axis from basically Istanbul to Jakarta, you draw a line, you got three, three, three and a half billion people that live there. Incomes are growing by 5% a year. And infrastructure spending in that area is going absolutely bananas because they have access to commodities that they never had before. So I think we're going to wake up in five years time and say, actually, the growth of the world, forget the US, forget ch China. That's not where the exciting excitement is. The excitement is in all these other emerging markets that are trying to do what China has accomplished. Because what China's accomplished throws the gauntlet down to the Indias of this world, to the Saudi Arabias, to the Indonesias, to the Brazils. It's like, well, how come they've got all this great infrastructure and we don't? I mean, everybody can now see on social media. Do you remember, it's, it's said that the Berlin Wall fell because people in East Germany through TV stations, through satellite TVs could see how the people in the West were living. 
And they're like, well, how come, how come I don't have a Walkman? How come I don't have, uh, you know, blue jeans and, and whatever else. And well, increasingly the same is true in emerging markets. They see like, they see China's high speed rails. They see China's airports. They see the fact that China now is producing its own uh, commercial air jets. And like, well, how come, how come we don't have that? You know, if you're India, it's like, well, we produce, are, are we stupid? We produce just as many engineers as China. Well, maybe just on that one. I mean, so, so it sounds like, so you are bullish on India and these economies. I'm yeah. super bullish. I'm, I'm very bullish on all yeah. emerging markets. I mean, um, I think the counterpoint against that, I mean, like the India-China debate was always, you know, China could, could basically centrally plan the economy in some ways, obviously a capitalist in, 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 uh, in other elements, but, but, but obviously no democracy. So the government can always direct the economy, whatever it wants and policy. Uh, and that was always seen as, uh, you know, in contrast to the Indian model, which was, you know, one step forward, chaos. chaos. So I was going to say one step forward, one step back, but maybe chaos is better. Um, you know, and the, the, the Indian the Indian model was the economy grows at night because that's when the government sleeps. Okay, yeah. So, <laughs> why why is that changing now? Then um, that, that that you're so optimistic. So let me just first say that what China did in terms of infrastructure spending won't be repeated ever. Um, you know, China in ten years, basically from 2001 to 2011. China poured more concrete than the United States did in the 20th century. So, you know, they, no, nobody's going to do that again. But China was 1.2 billion people back then. This whole area is 3.6 billion. So if they do a third of what China did, you end up in the same place. So, so that's number one. But, but number two, look, what China was able to do was um, basically grab capital, human capital, and financial capital, mobilize financial capital and, and human capital uh, in a way that had never been done before. In so doing, basically overcome its commodity dependency or its commodity weakness. And my belief is that, you know, the, the silver lining to this horrible Ukraine war is that for emerging markets, it gives them the same opportunity. Uh, basically, if you're an emerging market today, you have access to commodities at a price that you never had it before uh, because it's now in your own currency. And that, that's a game changer. If you're in India, not having to first earn US dollars. If you're in India, you've always struggled to earn US dollars. You know, what can you as India sell to the Americans that Americans want that you can then earn the dollar, enough dollars to fund your massive commodity needs because you got 1.4 billion people. You can't sell enough IT services for that. And now all of a sudden, it's Russia comes in and says, don't worry, we don't need US dollars. We're fine with rupees. Oh, well, okay. Well, that's a huge game changer, massive game changer. Same story for Indonesia, same story for Brazil, same story for all these guys. So the de-dollarization of the commodity trade that we're witnessing uh, in real time, the, the biggest macro consequence of that is an emerging market boom of epic proportion. The biggest constraint for most emerging markets was accessing dollars. And it was, it was a constraint today, but it's also a constraint over the future. So you were always reluctant to embark on big infrastructure spending, like let's say India, build a railway. Well, you know, if tomorrow you can't buy the iron ore because you've run out of dollars. Uh, now I think I'm never going to run out of rupees, uh, so I'm in good shape. But is it only, I mean, is it only a select group of countries such as Russia that will hold rupees as, you know, in, in reserves? I think to your point, I think what's happening in emerging markets is you're, you're splitting now increasingly emerging markets where you have the emerging markets where basically Russia and maybe a few other people will accept your currency. 
So obviously China's one, India's one, Thailand is actually another because the Russians left to go on holiday in Thailand. So they're happy to earn Thai bots. And then you have the, the emerging markets that are more frontier markets where nobody wants their currencies. You know, think your Egypt, your Sri Lanka, your Pakistan, you know, if you're Sri Lanka and you turn to Russia and say, hey, I'll buy your oil for Sri Lankan rupees, it's not going to work. Uh, so I think you are seeing a split, but the really big ones, the ones, to be honest, like that you can invest in, they've just had a massive, massive shift. Yeah. So let's go back to that, the, yeah, the kind of the, the, the structural growth in, in China. So look, uh, you know, growth is, is productivity gains plus, um, plus population growth. So there is no more population growth in China. So we, we have to accept that China is now just on a much lower growth base, but that happens to every economy, right? It's when you're a very small economy, it's decently easy to grow to grow fast. Partly because you have a lot a lot of low hanging fruit in terms of harvesting productivity gains. Now, China still has some of these uh, low hanging fruit in, in terms of productivity gains, but let's not kid ourselves that you know growth is going to be strong. Uh, now, to your point, what growth there is as you become more mature is increasingly in services. And here, I think you know there's a lot of work published on on the demographic transition in China. For me, the, perhaps the most interesting part of the demographic transition is if you take your your 30 to 45 year olds, right, which is typically your your, your biggest consuming group. Um, you know, when you're 30 to 45, you tend to buy an apartment, and then you you know put stuff in your apartment, your fridge, etc. You tend to buy a car. You need to buy the push chair for the baby. It's like you spend your whole time writing checks and here's what's happening in China is if you go back 10 years ago and you look at that 30 to 45 year old age group, 5% of those people were single living in by themselves in apartments, living in single person households. Today it's 10%. By the end of this decade or beginning of next, it'll probably be around 30%. Uh, at least if you look at the experience of Taiwan, Korea, Japan, Hong Kong, Singapore, that basically once you reach a certain level of income, but also a certain level of urbanization. That basically, once you move to above two-thirds being urbanized, partly because when you live in the countryside, you get married young. And when you live in the cities, people don't get married or they don't get married as much or they get married much later. So I highlight this because when you're single, and so China's going to move from basically their single biggest consuming age group, the 30 to 45-year-olds, it's going to move from what was 5% single just a few years ago to 30, 35 over the next decade or so, the consumption patterns change completely. When you're single, you spend a lot more on services than you do on goods. You don't buy a car. You might not even buy an apartment. You might just rent. You know, you go to the movies, you go to bars, you go to restaurants, you go on holidays. So, you know, one of my, my jokes is I always say, like, if, if China really moves 35% single, there's not enough white wine in the world. Yeah, and, and then move in services, you, you're seeing it already. You look at the ISM surveys for China, manufacturing has been weak. I think your last reading was around 48. Uh, services is at a 15-year high. I think we're at like 56 or something. So you, you, you get this split. And it's by the way, it's a split you're seeing everywhere. Services all across the Western world are booming and manufacturing is not. Maybe just going back to the upbeat view on emerging markets, and you mentioned kind of drawing a line from Istanbul to, to Jakarta and that, you know, 3.6 billion people, I think you said. 
I mean, obviously, yes, huge demographic uh, potential there, but obviously you're drawn a line through some of the most unstable areas geopolitically in the world. How do you reconcile kind of a bullish view with the fairly obvious kind of geopolitical um, risks that we're seeing playing out, you know, on multiple dimensions uh, at the moment? So here I think this is where we've had this, one of the single most important events this year that most people have sort of not paid enough attention to is the Saudi-Iran peace deal. It's, uh, for me, it's a, it's a massive game changer. Look, the Middle East has been torn asunder for the past 20 years with various proxy wars between Iran and Saudi Arabia, right? You've had Syria, Iraq, obviously Yemen, Lebanon. All these have been proxy wars between Saudi and Iran. And now they've decided to bury the hatchet and they've decided enough is enough. To me, to be honest, it reminds me of, you know, France and, the, and Germany, we went at each other's throats for 70 years. And then in 1946, we said, okay, well, let, let's stop doing that. Let's bury the hatchet and let's try to grow together. And, and we had 30 years of un, uninterrupted growth. It was called the Trente Glorieuses in French. And, you know, infrastructure spending. And, you know, there comes a time, I think, it's, it's always after 20, 25 years, sometimes longer, unfortunately, but where people say, okay, enough is enough. Let's just not do this anymore. I mean, you had something similar in Ireland, right? Where people decide, let's just, you know, let's, let's put our differences aside and we have more in common than, than, than we have that separates us. And once that happens, growth invariably follows. And you're, you're seeing this today with the announcements of massive infrastructure bill, massive, it's, you know, this is, this is such a bullish development. You know, I'm, I'm not saying it's all rosy and, and hunky-dory, but the two players that were doing so much to fund wars in that zone have just decided to, to call it quits. And so... No, I'm, I'm very hopeful for the region. And is that, I mean, a shift, for, you know, from Saudi's perspective towards more Middle East integration and less to be less US-centric uh, and, and less um, positive in terms of the relations with the US? Is, is that a natural corollary of that? I think it is. I think it is. I mean, look, uh, the fact that the Saudis didn't even tell the US they were signing a peace deal with Iran, I think, tells you everything you need to know. And you just look at the U.S. reaction and how pissed the U.S. was. And the U.S., of course, you know, it means for the U.S., it's not great news. Far, far fewer weapon sales uh, across the region. Look, for me, the, the biggest announcement, it literally, you know, I, I almost spit out my tea, uh, was the announcement uh, about 10 days ago that uh, Iran, Saudi Arabia, Oman, and the UAE were working together to form a joint navy to patrol the Persian Gulf and deal with the Somali parrots. I mean, in a million years, I would have never thought that was possible. And, and yet, you know, he, here you are. And, you know, why would you form a joint Navy if it wasn't in the express goal of telling the U.S. to bugger off? So, no, I, like, I think this is, this is dramatically, dramatically important to everything that's happening there. And it's happening at an accelerated pace. Uh, it's, it's fascinating. So, I mean, you mentioned kind of the de-dollarization theme being, being kind of underway in, in real time, as you described it. And I know you wrote a piece recently talking about uh, monetary policy and, and fiscal policy and how that is driving the dollar or not at the moment. And the idea being that we're in an interesting um, scenario, as you mentioned, the US running a 6% budget deficit and obviously rates up at 5%. So 
you know, a, what you might call a tight fiscal policy, sorry, a tight monetary policy, loose fiscal policy. And, and as soon as you say those words, everybody thinks back to the early 1980s and a big rally in the dollar. And um, so, so that might be a reasonable expectation at the moment. But obviously, we had that last year, it's reversed. And now we're seeing signs of, well, we had dollar weakness for a while, a bit more stable in the last month or two. Um, but you don't think that translates into a, a stronger dollar um, that policy makes. And is that largely because of these kind of a structural headwinds and this uh, shift towards less dollar usage? So here, to be perfectly honest, I'm not sure. Uh, and this is what I'm this is what I'm most nervous about. Um, probably the best investor that one of the best investors that's ever lived is Stanley Drunkenmiller. He always tells how he made his first billion, uh, realizing how the German reunification was going to lead to very easy f uh, fiscal policy, right? That the, the German government would have no choice but to spend a ton of money to integrate East Germany. Meanwhile, the Bundesbank uh, stood there and said, I'm not giving you that money. In fact, I'm going to hike interest rates and I'm going to tighten things. And when they did this in the early 90s, the, the Bundesbank basically sucked all the liquidity out of everybody else's markets. Sweden went bust. The pound had to leave the ERM. Uh, France went to a 15% unemployment rate. You know, the, there was a massive crowding out from the German government, uh, bond issuance of everybody else. And so today, when you look at the USA, I'm going to increase my debt $4 trillion over the next two years. The big question has to be, where's that $4 trillion going to come from? And that's with a T, not with a B. <laughs> $4 trillion, like that's a lot, a lot of money. And uh, it increases the U.S. government debt from 31 to 35. Not only that, but over that same period, over the next three years, the U.S. has to roll over roughly half of its debt. So all of this begs the question of who's going to stand on the other side of this, um, especially if foreigners, the foreign central banks, decide, you know what, I don't need to keep as many U.S. dollars as I used to in the past because now I can buy my oil in renminbi. I can buy my oil in Indian rupees. I can buy my oil in Thai bots. I don't need to keep all these U.S. treasuries. I was keeping. So the question becomes, who's going to buy all this debt? Now, it could be the U.S. commercial banks if the yield curve was steep, if there was something in it for them. But right now with the yield curve inverted, it can't be. So as I look at that massive issuance of debt, I come to the conclusion that either the Fed is going to monetize this, the Fed's going to have to step in and buy a lot of this debt that the U.S. government's going to issue. And if they do, the U.S. dollar government, the U.S. Uh, dollar goes down, bonds go down, commodities go up, gold goes up, etc. So that's that's scenario one, and that's what I think will eventually happen. The the problem is, first, do we have a Fed that says I'm not doing it, not my problem? Um, and if we do have a Fed that says not my problem, uh, then do we have a U.S. dollar that spikes up just like the Deutsche Mark spiked up? Uh, do we have uh, a bond market meltdown and a much much steeper yield curve? So that's that's my concern. I, I think the Fed folds, so I'm, I'm a bear on the US dollar, but it does make me lose sleep at night that, that I could be wrong on this. Obviously, we're not seeing that yet. I mean, if you look at 10-year yields, um, you know, 375 3.8%. So, so, so no sign there, really. And I mean, that's one of the bits that's maybe missing from the kind of tight monetary policy, loose fiscal mix. Although short rates are high in the US, you know, bond yields haven't... Uh, track them higher. You've got this big inversion in the yield curve. So what would be the catalyst, you think, for that to start seeing that play out in the bond market? I guess that's that, that's a great question. And, and to, to be fair, I expected bond yields to be higher by now. Um, 
So it's one potential catalyst is people realize, hold on, the US is not going into recession. And quite the contrary, you get massive fiscal expansion, et cetera. So that's, that, that, that's the obvious catalyst. Um, but I think also when you look at the term structure of US debt, it's really quite odd because you know European countries, when interest rates were super low, European countries took advantage of the, of the low, low interest rates to massively extend the duration of their debt. Uh, you remember Austria did a 100-year bond, even though it hadn't even been in existence for 100 years. France, Italy, Belgium, I don't know if Ireland did, I would imagine you would have. Uh, everybody did 50-year debt. And if you didn't do 50, you did 30. The U.S. never did. The U.S. massively shortened the duration of that debt. Uh, you know, there's, there's a, you can look at the term structure of, of uh, debt on, on Bloomberg, and it's amazing that half of the U.S. outstanding debt is below two years. And there's actually very little outstanding debt at 10 years, 10 to 15. There's basically very few issues, very, very few issues, practically nothing. So, you know, people tell me, oh, the yield curve in, is inverted. It's, so we're going to have a recession. Well, I'm like, well, if you issue all your debt at 12 months and zero at 10 years, and at the same time, you force through regulation people to own the 10 years, you know, pension funds, insurance companies and the like, and you tell them you have to own the 10 years and you don't issue any, then lo and behold, the 10 years trades at a huge premium. So perhaps what might simply happen is that in the next 12 months, as the US government increases its debt, it looks at the yield curve and says, you know what? I'm better off issuing 10 years at 3.8 than one year at 5% because the Fed isn't cutting anytime soon. So I might as well just go out and, and capture the lower rate at the 3 point And as it does, maybe the yield curve comes back into a little bit of equilibrium. Okay. And do you, think this, do you think the Fed would like to see higher long-term rates? Well, it depends what you mean by higher. I mean, do you think this, I mean, it's a bit like the Greenspan conundrum back in the 2000s. I think for the health of the financial system, you need a positively sloped yield curve. And so if you're the Fed, you have many jobs. One of them, you need to fight inflation, but the other is you need to maintain financial stability. Um, now you could say, well, keeping the banks under pressure is one of the ways to ensure that there's no increase in bank loans and that there's... Um, uh, and that inflation stays under 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 control, but to the extent that inflation rolls back below four percent, I think the the Fed will be happy to see the yield curve steepen a little bit. But uh, you know, to be honest, where the the Treasury decides to issue doesn't depend on the Fed; it depends on the U.S. Treasury itself, right? Um, and so it depends on what Janet Yellen wants to do. Just one topic before we run out of time. You know, we've had a huge run up in the Nasdaq in the last two months. You're seemingly disconnected from what what's been moving. You know, typically the kind of uh, uh, the technology stocks heavily driven by by yields, but that obviously AI has been the main driver in in the last couple of months, um, and obviously not without um, some justification in terms of the earnings we've seen from some stocks. I mean, from a macro perspective, how do you think about AI? Is it is it for real? Is it going to be very disinflationary? Will it change the world? Will it have serious uh, consequences for, for monetary policy? Um, or do people know yet? So I think it is for real. Um, and I think it's one of the, it's and yet another one of those challenges. You know, one of the reasons you have to stay modest today is that you know, we talked about deglobalization. We talked about, you know, big changes in fiscal and monetary policies. We talked about the demographic shift. 
Uh, all these are structural trends that, that mean that the world we're investing in is extremely different than the one you and I grew up in. And then you, now you've got another shift uh, that also means the world is very different, uh, this, this AI shift. I mean, I'll, I'll give you a couple examples. You know, at GAFCAL, we've got um, a couple software programmers, you know, to help us with, with things, write code, et cetera. And I was asking one of them recently when I was back in Hong Kong last week or two weeks ago, I was asking him, so this Chad GPT, how do you use it? How, how's it change your productivity? And he said, well, what used to take me a week now takes me four hours. Chad GPT does 90% of the work and I do the last, you know, I, I just check that it's okay. So it, it, it does change things dramatically. I think if you're an Infosys, for example, and you, if your business has been IT outsourcing, this is this you know AI is, is going to completely upend your business model. Um, and there's a lot of business models that are going to be completely, completely upended. So it is for real. Now, the question is, from there, how do you play it in the markets? So right now, I think you know when you look at NVIDIA trade at 38 times sales and 190 times earnings, the market is in essence telling you there's going to be a capital spending boom in this space of epic proportions. And that I'm less convinced of, actually. Because you know we subscribe to ChatGPT, it costs us 50 bucks a month, but that's it, right? And, and we use it and, it, it and it helps our productivity, but we don't need to massively increase our, our, our CapEx budgets. Now, I think you're at a very simple crossroad when you look at the AI thing. It's like, okay, are we going to see a massive new CapEx spending boom? If we are, then why should I worry about growth? Coming back to, our, to your very first question, if we're on the verge of an epic capital spending boom, you know, the growth is going to be strong. If you tell me, no, we're not going to see a capital spending boom, then there's no, no reason NVIDIA should be at 38 times sales. So let's assume there's going to be a massive capital spending boom. Um, the next question becomes, how is it going to be funded? You know, it's because if it's going to be funded, it's not going to be through bank loans, bank loans are not falling. So it's going to have to be funded through cash flows, corporate cash flows, which is fine. But that means that one of the pillars that has supported US equities for the past decade or so, which has been uh, share buybacks, is about to disappear. Nobody's going to do share buybacks because everybody's going to have to do AI investments. Just like in the late 90s, everybody had to do internet investments and everybody had to buy PCs for all their staff, et cetera. Now, you could say, well, it's okay because all this is going to be funded very quickly through productivity gains. But then, okay, fine. We're going to be able to fire, instead of having two software programmers, maybe I can only have one. But that means that then all these excess workers get dumped onto the lap of governments. And if they get la dumped onto the lap of governments, then we're going to have even bigger budget deficits uh, that are going to have to be funded through money printing. So, you know, everybody tells me, oh, this is so deflationary. I'm, I'm not so sure. You know, I, as you go through your decision tree, you can end up many, many different places. For what it's worth, I, I do believe it's for real. I don't believe it's going to lead to a massive capital spending boom, though, of epic proportions. Therefore, I think that the the big rally we've seen in some of these AI names is more typical of a of an echo boom. You you know, each time you've had a big 10-year bull market and it goes bust, you still have 30, 40, 50% rallies in the decade that follows. Japan, we talked about it earlier. You know, Nikkei, had three fifty percent rallies in the in the nineteen nineties. Nasdaq had three forty percent rallies in the two thousands. So for me, it's it's one of these echo blooms that you get after after a bust. For me, the the real story of the next ten years, where the capital spending is going to occur, where the boom is going to occur, is in uh, is in the broader emerging market space. And I think that's why we started the year with 
European equity is doing well. That's why Japan's doing well. Because uh, a lot of companies in Japan and Europe are actually pretty well positioned to participate in this emerging market boom. Very good. Well, we're over an hour. We normally uh, wrap up by just getting some general perspectives. Obviously, you've been working in the markets for you know number of decades. For people who are starting your journey in markets and investing now, any advice? What what would you encourage people to read or do as they if they want to get more informed on global macro and global macro investing? So read read as much as you can. Read whatever you can get your your hands on. Uh, there's also, you know, I think one of the the most interesting development of the recent years is the number of terrific podcasts that uh, that I put out there. And uh, there's honestly, I, I spend, you know, whenever I'm driving, whenever I do anything, I'm, I listen to podcasts. And there's there's honestly, there's find the ones that are right for you. Now, I think the main thing when it comes to working in financial markets is knowing what your own strengths and weaknesses are. And the, the challenge is you can't really know until you've done it for a while. But, you know, there, there is no right or wrong way to do financial markets. There's just the right or wrong way for you. And you have to know, again, your, your own strengths and weaknesses. And, and then you have to, to always strive to, to not put yourself in a position where your own weaknesses are going to be found out. And more often than not, that means managing, you know, right-sizing your positions so that they don't you know, you don't become emotional over them. You know, what? Uh, what's to read? To be honest, I would read a lot of, uh, in, in the books, what I found has helped me the most over the years is actually a lot of financial history books. Uh, well, Edward Chancellor's books are, are terrific. Um, I, I, I think uh, When Genius Failed was, was another great book. I think you learn a lot uh, reading books about various crises. Uh, you know, how crises unfold. And, and perhaps that's on my own bias because I started in a crisis, right? I started in the, in the Asian crisis and, and I was dumbfounded at how quickly things unraveled. So for most of my reading pleasure, I've tried to, uh, to try to find out, okay, you know, how, how do these crises start? So, you know, when, uh, when Genius Failed was, was a book that, that, that really marked me. And yes. Very good. Well, I, before we wrap up, I know you're a big rugby fan, so it would be remiss of me not to get a Frenchman's perspective on the upcoming Rugby World Cup. Are you feeling uh, pretty confident at this stage? Um, yeah, quietly confident. Quietly confident. I, I don't want to, uh, to to sound cocky, but no, I, li- I like the way our team looks. Uh, we, we obviously have a great home advantage. I think it's going to be a France-New Zealand final, but in a game, in a, you know, in a final, anything can happen. Good stuff. Well, hopefully Ireland have a better progress this time around. But uh, thanks very much, Louis. This has been a tremendous conversation. Thanks for joining us today. So make sure you follow Louis's work because as you can tell from today's conversation, we are living in a true global macro-driven world with a lot going on. So it's as um, important as ever to stay well-informed. So from all of us here at Top Traders Unplugged, Thanks for tuning in and we'll be back soon with more content. Thanks for listening to Top Traders Unplugged. If you feel you learned something of value from today's episode, the best way to stay updated is to go on over to iTunes and subscribe to the show so that you'll be sure to get all the new episodes as they're released. We have some amazing guests lined up for you. And to ensure our show continues to grow, please leave us an honest rating and review in iTunes. It only takes a minute and it's the best way to show us you love the podcast. We'll see you next time on Top Traders Unplugged.